Thank you for listening to this podcast. The Ville Church provides all its resources for free. If you have been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving financially. For more information on how to give and other resources, please visit www.theville.church. It's good to see everyone this morning. I am wearing this vest because it's cold. <laughs> and we don't know what to do with cold in Florida. <clears throat> Even my, my voice is trying to act up, so pray for me as I share. <clears throat> but it is good to see you. Last week I missed Rodney's sermon, and he was on growing into an emotionally mature adult because I was spending the morning with two to four-year-olds in our kidsville. You know, and as I, as I interact with them, I, I realize they're not, we wouldn't call them mature, but I can say they sure give the best hugs of everybody in the church, so I enjoy being with them. But in Rodney's sermon, he, he talked about how we grow from an emotional infant to an emotional adult, and as I talked with him and shared with him this week, I wanted to continue on that because he said he didn't get to finish all that he had, so I'll try to carry on. And I think we'd all like to say that we're growing, think of ourselves as growing toward emotional maturity. And if we're honest, many of our problems relationally and how we interact are caused by our emotional immature responses to things and people in our lives. Think about yourself, the way you respond, and I'm often ashamed of how I respond, very emotionally immature. Um, and this came to my attention when we lived in North Africa. I was part of a men's support group, and it was a group of European and American Caucasian men, and we called ourselves the angry white man's group because um, we were angry about a lot of things. We didn't understand the culture, the language, and so it came out in anger. Um, and so we met once a week to process our angry feelings. One member of our group shared a story that reflected how we struggled. He was helping a, a visitor to the country retrieve luggage from the airport. Uh, but she was the only one that had a ticket, so they, she was the only one that allowed to go behind into the luggage area to find it. He couldn't go past security, so she went back and she looked and she couldn't, she came back and she said, I, I can't speak, I, I can't know the language, I, I can't communicate well, and it's very difficult. And so he asked again, can I go help her? No, no, you can't stay here, she has to go on her own. So she went again and came again, she was almost in tears the second time, said, I don't know what to do, I can't explain. And so he tried again to get the chance to go back and they were very adamant, nope, you, you have to stay here. So he could feel his blood beginning to boil and so he had some choice words for the security personnel. And uh, one of them looked at him and said, uh, are you this angry in your own country? And he said, no, you make me angry. You people make me angry. And so many times we would struggle with that. Uh, our anger would come out in some very inopportune times. But as we look at scripture, Paul calls us toward maturity in Ephesians 4, 11 to 15. The Bible says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Uh, 
So I look at that scripture, I think that part of it, he says he wants we to become mature. We become mature, becoming unified in the faith and becoming in the knowledge of the Son of God. We become mature, we're growing. And we're growing as we become unified, we're growing as we become no more about Christ. And then he went on, he said, then as we become mature, we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in the in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is the Christ, that's Christ. So in this, he says, we, we, we grow as we become unified in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and then we speak the truth in love. We welcome the truth. We want to speak the truth to each other, and we welcome it so that we can grow up. You know, you think about infants and young children, um, many times the, we hear the truth or we tell them the truth, they don't want to hear it. They want to hear something else, and we, be, we can become like that. We don't want to know the truth because sometimes the truth means we need to make changes. Oftentimes it does, but we need to speak the truth, and that's when we come up and we grow and in, in, in to be mature body of him who is the head of that is Christ. But also we know that maturity comes through trials. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, the Bible says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, that perseverance finishes work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So he says, testing comes so that we can learn perseverance, and then through perseverance we will become mature. But many times, if you're, if you're like me, I'd rather become mature another way. The testing and trials are not my way of choosing to become mature, but that's how I grow. And I look back over my life, and the times I have grown are still growing. It is through testing and trials as I learn to persevere. So he's calling us to this. He's calling us to maturity in Christ. That's what we are. Maturity is spiritually as well as emotionally, and we know as we've gone through our, our discipleship series, they, they, they go together. You can't have one without the other. As I think about it, and he says in the book, we have one great problem that hinders us from growing into emotionally healthy adults, and that problem is ourselves. Because if I'm honest, I live with me at the center of my universe. That's what's most important is me. And you would say the same if you're honest, that you're the center of your universe. I mean, what's important to me needs to be important to others. An author, uh, M. Scott Peck, who wrote the book, The Road Less Traveled, if you're familiar with it, he argues that we're all born narcissists and that learning to grow out of our narcissism is at the heart of the spiritual journey. Uh, if you have any questions about or any doubts about our self-inbred self-absorption, you should spend a few hours with toddlers. Um, and you'll realize very quickly that that self-absorption is kind of inbred. You know, I, I don't remember ever teaching my sons the word mine. I don't ever remember saying, this is a word you need to know. But when they learned it, they used it every opportunity they could. Mine, mine, mine. If you're being with the, the, the children in Sunday school, sometimes there will be a toy across the room. But if another child is playing with it, somehow that toy becomes mine. And I run to get it. And, you know, and if we look at our own lives, we struggle with that. I think sometimes <clears throat> when the Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, I have a hard time rejoicing with others because I think I should have what they are rejoicing over. This should be mine. 
Or if someone is mourning over something, I want to say, well, they deserved it, but I don't deserve that because I'm at the center. I'm, 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 and I'm narcissistic. And, you know, it, it, it can become over the top many times. There's a, a funny story of a man who was uh, uh, marooned on a deserted island. He was all by himself for years. And one day he was strolling on the beach and he, he saw a ship in the distance. So he built a big fire to get, gather smoke to get, gain attention. And so the, the ship came to him. They sent some people over to see what was up. And he was so excited about being rescued because he had spent all these years by himself on this island. And so they came across and they said, you know, tell us about your life here. How did you make it? And he said, well, I, he told them how he lived, what he, what he lived on. And, and he said, I've been here for many years. And he said, he pointed to a ridge. He said, and that's my house up there. I built a house so I could live here. And when they looked up, they saw three buildings. They said, okay, uh, the one year's your house. What's the building next to that? He said, well, that's the church where I worship. Even though I'm alone, I feel like I need to worship. And then they said, but the third building, what's that? He said, well, that's my first church before the other church split. That's my first church. He was so caught up in himself that he couldn't understand his issues. And I mean, we, we're all that way. We all struggle with that, our, our, our tendency toward focusing on ourselves. Uh, Pete Gazzaro, the author of the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he tells about at their wedding, he and his wife um, lit a unity candle. It's where they, you, th you take two candles that are lit and you light the third candle to symbolize you're becoming one and you blow out the first two candles. Pete says they did that and they did it symbolizing their commitment to God and to one another to become one in Christ. And they said, we are one. He said, but the problem was they didn't decide which one. And so Pete, in his mind, said, I am the one, and we're becoming like me. And it happens that way many times, all too often. And in the book, um, he talks about uh, a Jewish theologian, Martin Buber. He's written another book called I and, I and Thou, and he describes a mature relationship between two humans as an I and Thou relationship. In this relationship, I recognize that I am made in the image of God, and so are you. We're both made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God. We call that imago, imago Deo. We realize that. Because of this reality that we're all made in the image of God, everyone deserves respect and to be treated with dignity and worth. I do not dehumanize you or objectify you or others if I see that you are made in the image of God. I affirm you and others as having a unique and separate existence from me. We are separate we are equal in God's eyes but we're not the same and though you and I are different I still love respect and value you because we are all made in God's image the problem according to Martin Buber in his book he says we, we lose sight of this reality we treat people as objects uh, instead of people made in God's image and so these people become an it instead of a, a thou and it's about the same as you use them to meet an end that you have, just like any other object. He said, like a toothbrush or a car. It meets an end for you because you're at the center. Some ways, what this might look like is if you are working with someone, they're subordinate. Uh, you just walk in and you dump work on them without even recognizing them, without even saying hello. You just give them because they're the means to your end to get work done. Or maybe you talk about people in authority over you as being somewhat subhuman. 
Or maybe we treat our people in our families. Maybe I treat my wife and children if they're not in charge of their own freedom. I expect them to be the picture of what I have in my mind they should be. Or maybe I treat someone as an idiot, not a, a valued human. If I'm so that if they disagree with me when that, my political views, that I'm threatened by that. No, you know, you need to agree with me in what I think. Or and this, this really hit home for me many times. He says, we'll befriend someone, maybe a neighbor or a coworker, hoping they will attend church with us. And then when they don't, we just simply move on to someone else. Uh, they didn't meet our end. They didn't come to what we wanted. So they, they, we treat them as an it instead of a, a thou. So the result of these I-it relationships is I get frustrated when people don't fit into my plans, see things the way I do or agree with my opinions. If you fail to agree with me, you're simply wrong. Uh, Connie has a magnet on our refrigerator of a man and a woman where the woman is smiling as she tells the man, if I agree with you, we'd both be wrong. And many times I approach people that way. If I agree with you, we'd both be wrong. So we can't do that. I have, you have to agree with me for us to be right. Recognizing our uniqueness and separateness of every other person is pivotal to emotional maturity. If we're going to grow emotionally, we have to recognize our separateness and our uniqueness. We can easily demand that others view the world as we do because we believe our way is the right way. Our way is the right way. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes hell as a place where every person lives in isolation, millions of miles apart from one another because they simply can't get along. Simply can't get along. And I think about that. That is, that is, that is hell to be able to, one of the worst feelings in the world is to be in a large group of people and to feel very much alone. And we are that way if we see other people as it's instead of thou's. But on the other side, uh, Martin uh, Buber goes on, he says, true relationships are formed with an I and thou mentality, where they exist where two people are willing to connect across their differences. Okay? God fills and penetrates this space in between two people. This I-thou relationship between persons ultimately reflects the I-thou relationship we have with God. Genuine relationship with any thou or any person has a, it reflects the eternal thou. When we genuinely love someone as emotional adults, treating them as a thou, not an it, God's presence is manifest. And this space between us becomes a sacred space where we want to enter, to know the other person, and to be known in that. Practicing I and thou relationships requires us, though, to resolve conflict. If you're in any relationship for any length of time, you'll be, there will be conflict. Okay? We have to learn how to constructively and negotiate solutions so that we can consider the other person's perspective. In the Bible, that's called peacemaking. We are called to be peacemakers. We're not called to live with conflict, but all too often we live with conflicts in our lives, with conflict with others. We live with it. God says that's not the way. It is we're called to be peacemakers. And if you, within conflict, I found in my own life, and, and maybe you can um, attest to this, people usually uh, 
approach conflict in one of two ways. These are two extremes, but this is what happens. They either avoid conflict like it is the plague, or they use it to their advantage. Okay? Those who avoid conflict just hope it goes away. Okay? And we call those people peace fakers. You know, they, 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 it looks like it's peaceful. It looks things are good. And so there's, you don't see the conflict, so it doesn't exist. They believe as long as there are no visible signs of conflict, people are good with their feelings. Because they don't deal with conflict and they stuff their feelings, they commit what is called a relational suicide. And they emotionally die to the relationship. I know this very well because that's me. I am a peace faker. I didn't grow up learning how to resolve conflict, so if I, just, I can ignore it, it's better. And there have been many times to the detriment of myself and other relationships, I've lived this way. On the other side of the conflict spectrum, there's people that use conflict to their advantage. Okay? And we call these peace breakers. There's peace fakers and peace breakers. These people believe as long as they're able to express their feelings often in the strongest possible ways, it's the other person's responsibility to do how they feel, how they receive that. They receive the truth. I want to give you truth in this conflict. I'm going to represent myself, and you just have to deal with your feelings. That's your problem. They actually think the best way to deal with the conflict is to meet it head on. So they have a better chance of getting what they want. And in this situation, as I said, the first, the peace uh, fakers, they commit emotional suicide and they die of the relationship. This person would commit emotion, relational murder where the other person often dies to the relationship because they don't feel like you really want the relationship. You just want to use me for your means. And so that, that's two ends of the spectrum and neither one of them in God's eyes is right. He calls us to be peacemakers, to meet where we are working where you understood and we, we come together. But that is the challenge for us. I, I think just naturally we fall into either peace fakers or peace, peace breakers. And God says, I call you to another way. As peacemakers, we are to embrace conflict as a way to grow emotionally, to be more like Christ. True peacemakers love God, others, and themselves enough to disrupt false peace. You cannot have the true peace of Christ's kingdom with lies and pretense. They must be exposed to the light and replaced with truth. This is the mature, loving thing to do. Even though it's sometimes the hardest thing to do in the immediate, it is the only thing that will bring a real peaceful solution. In, Beatitude, in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 3-11, Jesus explains the characteristics we need to engage in true peacemaking. He says there's the poverty of spirit, we need meekness, we need to have a pure heart, and we need mercy. But he also says, in the midst of this, that persecution will follow those who commit to be true peacemakers. So if we can, if we can avoid conflict or use it to our advantage, many times we think that's the better way than committed to be true peacemakers, where we have to realize we're poor, we're poor in spirit, we are, we're humble, we become humbled by it, we're, we are pure of heart, our, our motives are right, and we're, we're merciful. But you know, in, in facing conflict, there are some skills we can learn in doing it better, and I'd like to share some of those that come from the book that, I, that 
He spoke to me, and maybe you've heard them before. Maybe it'll be a reminder. Maybe new things to you. But I feel like they're, they're, very, they're very powerful. There are about four or five skills I'd like to share with you. The first one is speaking and listening. If we're going to uh, communicate truth, we have to be able to speak truth and listen to truth. In James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, My brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But if I often look at how I, re- I respond to situations in my life, it's actually the opposite. I am slow to listen, quick to speak, and oh, so quick to become angry when I am offended or something happens. I, I do the opposite. Instead of being quick to listen, I'm, I'm quick to speak. Instead of being slow to speak, I'm, I'm quick to speak, and I'm quick to become angry. But in, in speaking and listening, there are some things that we can learn to do. Okay? If you are the speaker, okay, there are about four or five things you can do. First, you can talk about your own thoughts and own feelings when you're in a, in a conflict. Tell them what, what you're about. Speak in the I, not in the you and blaming others, which is so easy to do. Be brief. Use short sentences. Don't, don't go on and on, but just say where you're at, what's happening in the middle of it. Correct the other person only if you believe he or she has misread something. If you're in the middle of a conflict with someone and you're trying to share what's up, only correct the other person, okay, as you're, as you're speaking to them if you feel like they've missed something. Continue speaking until you, fin- you feel you've been under- understood, and then finish by saying, that's all I have to say for now. But if you're the listener, which is a, this is a skill to learn, um, as I said, I'm many times quick to speak instead of being slow to speak, I'm, quick, I'm, I'm slow to listen, but listening, we have to put our own agenda aside. Be quiet and still as you would before God. Just say, I'm here to listen, God. Speak, I'm listening. So you want to hear from the other person. Put put your own agenda aside. Don't interrupt the other person. How hard is that? When someone is speaking and you think they're going off, you want to interrupt them. No, it says, allow the other person to speak until he or she completes a thought. And then reflect accurately the other person's words back to him or her. Say, this is what I think you said. Am I right? Am I hearing you correctly? And then in the end, ask, is there more? Maybe they haven't shared everything. Give them a chance to speak. We need to hear from other person. If the other person is valued in our sight, if they are creating God's image, they have as much to add as you do. So that's uh, speaking and listening. How powerful is that in resolving conflicts? He goes on in the book to say, he's come up with something he calls the Bill of Rights. He said, respect is not a feeling. It's how we treat one another. We have to respect each other. And respect, he says, means I give myself and others the right to, and he mentions several things, okay? The first one is I give others and myself the right to privacy and space. How does that look? We play it out. It means I knock before entering a room when someone is there. I don't open someone else's mail. I respect other people's need for quiet and space. You have a right to that. I have the right to that. You have the right to be different, Okay? Allow for different preferences in many things. Food, movies, volume of music, how we spend our time. You have a right to that. I have a right to that. You have a right. We have a right to disagree. We don't have to agree on everything. Okay? Making room for each person to think and, and, and live differently. You know? The way you live is, it, 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 we, before we went overseas years ago, we learned that there are many things different. And just some, because something is different doesn't mean it's wrong. 
And many times I take it that way. It's, it's different, it's wrong, but it's not right. We can, be, we can disagree, we can still be good with that. The other person and, and myself, we have a right to be heard. Listen to the other person's desires, opinions, thoughts, and feelings. If they are creating God's image, I can learn something from them. I can be here from them. We have the right to be heard. We have the right to be taken seriously. Okay? We have the right to be to listen and be present to one another. If you've ever been in a meeting with someone, and they may be physically there, but as you're talking, you're realizing they're not listening. They're not hearing. But if someone is made in God's image, I need to be present with them. I need to commit to that. They have the right to be taken seriously. They have the right to be given the benefit of a doubt. Checking out assumptions rather than judging one another when misunderstanding arise. I don't know about you, but I, I quickly go to assumptions. I, 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 I like to judge. Somehow I feel like I have, I have the ability to do that, to judge. And jump in and judging someone instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt. But I have the right to that. You have the right to that. You have the right to be told the truth. Okay? You can count on, we need to count on each other to speak the truth to one another when we're asking for information. Whatever it is, we need to be able to count on that. I have a right to the truth. You have a right to the truth. You have the right to be consulted. Checking and asking when decisions will affect others. And how often have I missed that one in my life? I've just decided I'm going to make a decision, we're going to do it or this, and I didn't consult others. But people have the right to be consulted if it'll affect them. You have the right to be consulted. We have the right to make, be imperfect and make mistakes. We all have the right. To, we, we have, you have to leave room for things being broken, forgetting things, laying each other's down, failing tests. We have the right to, to, to do that. We have the right to be imperfect and make mistakes. We have the right to be courteous, to courteous and honorable treatment, okay? using words that don't hurt, asking before using, consulting when appropriate, treating each other, as I and thou's, not I and its. Everyone has the right to courteous and honorable treatment. And then finally, everyone has the right to be respected, taking one another's feelings into account. I might not feel the way you do about something, but because you're creating God's image, I need to respect your feelings. They need to, you need to be respected in that. So he calls that the Bill of Rights. And I thought to live my life that way, when I'm here with others working through conflict, I can learn a lot just by living my life by these Bill of Rights, as he calls them. Part of it he talks about also is checking out assumptions. You ever made an assumption about a situation to only find out later that you were completely wrong? He says in the book, every time I make an assumption about someone who has hurt or disappointed me, I usually make, I believe, a lie about this person in my head. I don't know this to be the truth, but I start believing what I assume to be the truth in my head. And many times the assumption is a misrepresentation of reality. It's not real, but it, it seems real to me. It's an assumption. And because I have not checked out with the other person this assumption, it's very possible I'm believing something that's untrue. More often than not, I've found that to be true of me. And the sad thing it is, by this really comes, is it is likely that I will pass this assumption falsely onto someone else. That's called gossip, and how easy is that to do, you know, for others. <clears throat> There's a story I heard once of a, a man who was on the subway, I think, in New York City, and uh, a, a man got, another man got on with four or five children, and the children were just out of control. And the man just sat there, the, the, who came on with the children, and just kind of looked at the floor. 
And the other man was just appalled at how this man was not taking care of his children. And, you know, of course, he started assuming that the man was a poor father. He was, you know, whatever his relationship with the children, he wasn't taking care of them. And as the train ride went on, the subway, the, the children became more unruly. And, and uh, the, the, the man on the train spoke to the father of the children. And out of his assumptions that he was, you know, neglecting his children, he said, can you do something? Your children are out of control, and then we can't enjoy the ride. Well, the man who got on with the children, he, he looked up, and he, obviously he was very disturbed, and he said, I'm very sorry that my children are, are acting this way. He said, but we just left the hospital, and their mother just passed away, and I don't know what to do with them, how to deal with them. And so it just changed everything for the man who was judging and making assumptions about this man. He made assumptions that the man was not caring. He didn't he would care for his children, but he didn't understand what was happening in his life. And how often do we do that? We make assumptions without finding, checking the assumptions out. In the book, he says, there are things we can do to check out assumptions. Don't live with assumptions. You can reflect on something you suspect, you suspect the other person thinks and feels, but hasn't told you. Make sure you, make the, you understand what, what you're assuming. And then you go to the other person. You can ask them, do I have your permission to check out an assumption I'm making? Ask them, I have this assumption. Is this true or not? And if they grant you permission, continue and tell them the assumption. You could say, I think you think this about me, maybe. Or I assume you are thinking this and fill in the blank. And then you could say, is that correct? Am I correct in that? Okay. And then you allow the other person to respond. But if we make assumptions, the problem is we live by assumptions. The other person has no chance to respond. We live our lives based on assumptions, you know. And, and how often does that happen? Uh, just like the man in the story, he was living his life based on the assumption this man didn't care about his children. He cared deeply about his children, but there was nothing he could do at that moment. And so he says how important that is to check out assumptions. Don't live on assumptions. Don't live by assumptions. If we're going to grow up as emotionally mature believers in Christ, we can't live with assumptions. Then he goes on and he says, <clears throat> talks about expectations. Unmet and unclear expectations create havoc in our relationships. Uh, we want other people to know what we want before we say it. Is that true of you? I find it often is true of me. The problem with this is that most expectations are unconscious. Only we know them. They're unrealistic. They're unspoken. And they're unagreed upon. Okay. Those, that, that's the problem with expectations that are, that are unclear to others. And we all have stories of unmet expectations. I mean, if you think about it, it won't take you long to come up with one. When Connie and I were first married and beginning our new home, I left home one day for the day, and she told me, I'm going to make a chicken for us this evening. And I grew up in South Carolina, and in South Carolina, there's only one way you cook chicken, okay? We, we fry chicken. We fry it a lot. So I left home that day, and all day I was thinking, wow, I can't wait for fried chicken. I got home in the evening, and there was one pot on the table. And I thought, I don't see any fried chicken here. And I didn't see any fixings with them. And so we sat down for dinner, and she said, she, she showed me, I, I fixed a nice dinner for us. And she opened the pot, and it was chicken soup. And my expectations had not been met, but I enjoyed that chicken soup. It was probably the best chicken soup I've ever had, and kind of an incredible cook, but I had an expectation of something else. And so... When I saw the chicken soup, I thought, I can say, this is not what I expected, or, you know, thank you. Uh, 
but it was an expectation that didn't, that wasn't fulfilled for me that day. And, that, and we can laugh about that. I can laugh about it now. But it was, you know, that day it was like, whoa, this is not what I expected. And how many times is that true of us? And, and, and you know, in that time, I didn't tell Connie what I was expecting. Uh, I didn't, it was, that was not clear. It was, un, it was conscious only to me. I didn't tell her. It was, I don't know how realistic it, realistic it was. But um, later she told me, she said, she could make me fried chicken as much as I want, but she said she wanted to keep me around for a while. And she said, fried chicken has a negative effect on your health. And so I've learned that. Um, and, 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 you know, my expectation, we didn't agree on it. You know, it, was just, it was my expectation. It wasn't hers. And so it's like, we all live with these expectations. And if we don't communicate them and we don't make them clear, it, it'll cause problems in our relationships. So he said, in the book, he says, clear expectations must be four things. They must be conscious. I have to become aware of the expectation I have for the other person. I have to become aware. And, you know, I need to understand what I'm expecting. Okay? They need to be realistic. I have to ask myself if my expectation regarding the other person is realistic. Can this actually happen? Sometimes our expectations are unrealistic. You know, if you have children and you expect them to be, act more mature than they're able to at their age, that's unrealistic. Um, they have to be spoken. I have to speak my expectations clearly, directly, and respectfully to the other person. I have to let them know, this is what I'm expecting. This is what I would like. And then, they have to be agreed upon. In order for my expectations to be valid, the other person must be aware and agree to, to my expectation. Otherwise, it is simply a hope. I hope this will happen, but there's no agreement. There's no, and many times it doesn't happen because it's not agreed upon. But it says we have to make sure our expectations are clear. So we have to check out our assumptions. We have to make sure our expectations are clear. And then the last thing he says in dealing with conflicts and dealing with becoming emotionally mature people, we have to realize there's allergies and triggers in our lives. An emotional allergy or a trigger is an intense reaction to something in the present that reminds us unconsciously or consciously of an event from our past. When this happens, we end up treating the other person as if they were someone from our past. You get into a situation and this person begins to remind you of a past. When Connie and I have disagreements, a friend of mine calls disagreements in a marriage heated fellowship. When we have heated fellowships or disagreements, I often have flashbacks to my parents' arguments, how they settled their arguments. And my mind goes back to my dad, and I realized he never felt he could win an argument with my mom. It just wouldn't happen. So what did he do? He just shut down. And so in times when Connie and I have disagreements or, or arguments, I find myself seeing Connie like my mother, and I become like my dad, and I start shutting down. And when this happens, of course, it doesn't help anything. It only frustrates Connie and separates us further because I, it triggers something within me. And until I realize that, it doesn't, it doesn't help me. I, I, you know, I grew up watching my parents have disagreements and arguments, and I thought, I'll never handle it that way. I'll never do that. My dad, I, I said, what he's doing is not good. But amazing, in the middle of my relationship with Connie, I become just like my dad. So it just, it just comes naturally somehow. I just, that's what I observe. That's what I do. But I realize it doesn't help. I've got to identify those triggers, see where they're coming from, and then work against them because it doesn't help to do that way. And in the book, 
emotionally healthy spirituality, there is an exercise that I would recommend. Connie and I have begun to do it, uh, where you work through these emotional triggers. It asks questions of like, an emotional allergy you trigger in me is this. This is what, when you do this or say this, this is what happens. This is how, I, and sometimes those, you've been amazing if you're with someone, and you may say something small or do something you think is not that significant, and that person acts, reacts so intensely, so, he's like, whoa, where'd that come from? But it's an allergy or a trigger that you triggered, and you didn't even realize you did it. And then you start, you have to work through some things like, I, this is what I think or tell myself when this happens. And then you go on and you, you, you say, this is, this is how it relates to me in my history. So as kind I've worked through these, I, I've, I've had to tell her, when you do this, it reminds me of my mother and my dad, and, and this is how I respond, and it, it's not what I want, but this is, this, is, this is a reality. So you work through, I, we found it quite powerful to be able to go through that and to work through these things, these triggers and, and these allergies, they call them, okay? And then in the end, you can say something um, the words that, from my past that I needed and the words which I wish had been said to me would have been this. If you'd have said this way or did this, I receive it very differently. So just to be able to work through that. So I, I, would, I would recommend that as you get a chance to look back at the book it, on this uh, topic of allergies and triggers. It's very powerful to work through it. Otherwise, I find that if I don't work through them, they don't go away. I still respond. I still react when this is done. But, and, and, and it's still it's confusing to the other people. Why, why are you reacting this way? And it's confusing to me sometimes as well. And I'd like to just finish this time by reading uh, from the book uh, a, a portion, about two, cha- two paragraphs that really spoke to me as you think about becoming an emotionally mature adult. It says, <clears throat> in the book, he says, one of the greatest gifts we, the church, can give to our world is to be a community of emotionally healthy adults who love well. This will take the power of God and a commitment to learn, grow, and break with unhealthy, destructive patterns that go back generations in our families and cultures, and even in some cases in our Christian culture. It says, remember Jesus formed a community with a small group of, from Galilee, and Galilee was a backward province in Palestine. These men were neither spiritually nor emotionally mature. Peter, the point leader, had a big problem with his mouth and was a bundle of contradictions. Andrew, his brother, was quiet and behind the scenes. James and John were given the names of sons of thunder because they were aggressive, hot-headed, ambitious, and intolerant. Philip was skeptical and negative. He had limited vision. He was the one, when it came time to feed the 5,000, or Jesus said, feed the 5,000, he said, we can't do that. And that summed up his faith. Nathaniel Bartholomew was prejudiced and opinionated. Matthew was the most hated person in Capernaum, working in a profession that abused innocent people. Thomas was melancholy, mildly depressive, and pessimistic. James, son of Alphaeus, and Judas, the son of James, were nobodies. The Bible says nothing about them. Simon the Zealot was a freedom fighter and a terrorist in his day. Judas the treasurer was a thief and a loner. He pretended to be loyal to Jesus before finally betraying him. If you look at these men, most of them, however, had one great quality. They were willing. And that is all God asks of us, to be willing to allow him to change us, to become emotionally mature adults. Let me pray for us. 
Father, thank you for this uh, time we've had to look into your word, to, to look into this book about becoming emotionally mature adults. And Father, that's what you want from us. You call us to maturity in Christ, and part of that maturity is becoming mostly mature adults. And so, Father, lead us to that. Help us to grow in that area. And I see as I went through this myself, there's areas where I need to grow for sure. So teach me how to grow, how to how to grow into that, to become more like Christ. And, and for my brothers and sisters here, may we be committed as a community to show the world a different way of living, that we live in the truth, that we respect each other, that we see each other as truly being uh, made or created in the image of God, our Father. So, Father, show us how to, how to live that way, and that we might be a community that people say there's a difference there. For your glory and your honor. Thank you in Jesus' name.